This is a woman who has had her heart prepared for this encounter before it happened. The Spirit had been doing work on her before she showed up that day. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Good afternoon. All right, Kenzie. Afternoon. All right. Happy Mother's Day to all you wonderful moms here and moms-to-be. I know it's the desire of some. Okay. All right. Well, let's pray, and then we'll get started here. people and open your word up for their benefit. Lord, it is overwhelmingly for my benefit getting to prepare and spend time with you. And and Lord, I I always feel as if I'm the first person that gets to hear the message, not that I'm the one who brings it. But Lord, I, I ask that this would be an encouragement to your church. Lord, I am confident not in my ability, but in your ability. Lord, you have used many different weak people in the course of history to bring glory to your name. And I pray that I would be counted among them, Father. Amen. Alrighty. Well, I had hoped um, to bring a Mother's Day message today because it's Mother's Day and it's not something that's, that's a small thing at all. It's a, kind of a cash grab holiday, you know, flowers, chocolates, jewelry, but being a mom is a really, really important role. And I'm not downplaying fathers at all, but it's you moms that spend most of the day with your kids, and you're pretty much the, the main influence in your kids' lives for the first, uh, you know, developing years. And, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm the one gone for, you know, 10 to 12 hours a day, if not more. Uh, and Kendra's the one that stays home with the kids. So I wanted to try and make something much of Mother's Day, and, and I had been working on a, a message for a couple weeks and tried to find a way to tie it into Mother's Day. And uh, I wasn't going to share this, but it seems like I will now. And, and yesterday during preparation, everything I had worked on just got deleted off my computer. It was unrecoverable. And I was like, okay, Lord, okay. I did it once, and then I had all my notes and all my tabs were still open. I thought, okay, okay, I'll just I'll put it back together, put it back together. And I had kind of found a rabbit trail I wanted to go down. I don't know if you guys can experience this, but when you're going through a topic, you use different verses to reference, and then one particular verse just sends you down a rabbit trail, and you're like, oh, I could do a whole, no, 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 that's not where I'm going today. I came back. So, built the whole message, and, and put it together again, and just didn't feel a piece about it. No audible voice from heaven, nothing um, uh, weird, but just didn't feel quite a piece about it. And uh, I looked at Kendra last night at midnight and said, I need to go write a different message. I'll be back. So the Lord had me write a completely different message for today. And uh, I'm very excited about it because it came together very fluidly and very well. And, and this is not a boast in what I have. This is a boast in, wow, the Lord really is able to provide at the 11th hour. 
And uh, so my other message is on my computer. It's saved. Maybe the Lord will let me revisit it someday. But this is what I'm confident the Lord would have you bring because I didn't have a smile about the last message, and I'm very excited about this one. <laughs> um, so, and it is, it is kind of motherly. My message today is on uh, evangelism. It's an evangelical message. It's titled, Look for the Open Door. So look for the open door. And you mothers are like the most evangelical role in the house because you're constantly getting to share gospel truths with your kids. So look for the open door at home too. Um, but our text today is going to be uh, in John chapter 4, and we're going to read from verse 1 to verse 43, and then we're going to kind of dive into this uh, optimistic evangelical encounter in the life of Christ. Because we see Christ, you know, preaching on a mountain to thousands of people, healing people, debating Jewish leaders, and debating Pharisees, and, and correcting people, and, and uh, uh, he, he goes in the marketplaces, and he's, he's well public, and Christ's evangelism, if you were to look at it, is what you would kind of consider evangelism to be. You would think, oh, it's this, you know, street preaching, or passing out tracts, or even like a, a sermon from the pulpit where he's got a bunch of people and he's kind of delivering a one-sided message. And that's what a lot of people think of evangelism when they hear evangelism. You know, do you evangelize? Oh, I, I don't. I didn't make it to the college campus last week. You know, we, we have guys here that evangelize, and, and we pray for them, we encourage them, and that is a good and right and true way to evangelize, but that is not the only way to evangelize. So I want to look at a very common situation that occurs in life, and how Christ used that situation, led by the Holy Spirit, to evangelize, and have been a fruitful evangelism at that. So, uh, with all that being said, we're going to start in John chapter 4, verse 1. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples... He left Judah and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Joseph's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came, and dr- came to draw water. Jesus said to her, "'Give me a drink.'" For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink for me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well, or he gave us the well, and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again, and the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come and draw water. And, sorry, one second. 
I had technical difficulty, so that makes sense that it would delete part of the text as I was reading. So we'll go here. 16. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying you have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming where neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such a people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, What do you seek? Or, Why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say, the, There are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving his wage and gathering fruit from, for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed two days, and he stayed there two days. And many of them believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. In the copy-paste game we play of trying to keep our notes together, I lost verse 16, so I figured it was better to read from the text. So, Jesus, in his earthly ministry, was perfectly led by the Spirit in everything he did. Every decision he made, every place he went, it was a perfect leading of the Spirit. And what seems common, what seems to be just a normal situation, is the Spirit leading him and him being in perfect unity and submission that we saw last week. So, we see... 
we see what, what begins our, our story here as a very common thing. Jesus is he's doing ministry stuff. And the Pharisees hear that he's making more, more disciples, or he's baptizing more than John the Baptist did. And he hears of this, so he decides to leave. He decides he's going to go to Galilee. He has to leave from Judea to Galilee. And in order to do that, he has to pass through the land of Samaria and specifically the town of Sychar. So this is a very common thing. And I don't want to in any way bring Christ down. Everything is uncommon because it's Christ who does it. But this is just traveling. This is, I had to come from Elgin to this to here, and in order to do so, it took me through Bastrop. I, I, I drove from Elgin into Bastrop, and then from Bastrop through Austin, and now I'm here. And, and that's, that's the record. It's a simple record. And Jesus traveled on foot in the Middle East. It's hot. <laughs> when you travel, and you, you get weary, and you see a well, you're going to sit next to the well because you're thirsty. And that's what we see here. He was traveling, and he sits next, next to Jacob's well. Okay, this is all very common stuff. This is going to happen to some of us. This has probably happened in Jesus' life dozens of other times, and none of them were notable. None of them were recorded for us. I know they weren't notable because when his disciples showed back up and they saw him sitting at the well talking with the woman, they didn't sit back and go, yes, this is one of the master's great teaching moments. They were confused. Like, why is he talking with her? That seems weird. Like, one, it's a woman, kind of, like, that's, that's a little cultural odd, oddity. But the second part is, she's a Samaritan, and the Jews and the Samaritans don't talk to each other. So this wasn't a common occurrence for Jesus. But he uses this opportunity that presents itself. And, he's, and he is sensitive to the Holy Spirit's guidance, and he uses this opportunity to evangelize. This is not street preaching. There's, not, there's no tracks being passed out. He doesn't start his, his sentence with repent for the kingdom of heaven is that near. But, but this is an evangelical encounter in the life of Christ. Starting in verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away to buy food. Normal, common. You're thirsty. You're sitting next to well. Somebody comes up with a bucket to draw water. You're going to ask them for some water. This is very common. If you can remember in Genesis 24, around 15 and 16, it's pretty common for ladies to leave and go get water. That's how um, Abraham's servant met Rebecca. She was coming to get water. So this all sounds like life, just life happening. It's only different to us because we have you know, cars and indoor plumbing, but going out, drawing water, being weary from a journey, needing a well, this is just normal life stuff. This reminds me of, there was a, there's a, a ministry that I know called Thirsty Ground International, and they do a lot of stuff overseas, but they also help um, emergency relief aids in the, in the States. And uh, if you guys can remember, when Hurricane Harvey hit Houston, it devastated a lot of Houston. So Thirsty Ground sent a bunch of guys to Houston. They had a bus, it was like a little short bus, and it was a junker, but it worked. And they sent a team to Houston to go do ministry stuff. So you got... Uh, one of the brothers had to drive the bus, and he had to go to Houston, and they came back with a great testimony of, like, yeah, we got to help this guy, and, you know, found out, like, his mom had cancer, so we prayed with him, and we got to do the ministry stuff here, and we, you know, we cleaned out his house, and we took all the stuff that had gotten destroyed by the water, and then this lady needed food, so we helped her out, and so he's giving me the account, 
in front of a group of people of like all the ministry work they did. And then after that, we're sitting next to each other, and he's like, yeah, that bus is, is something else. And I was like, oh, what happened? He goes, the firewall is damaged between the pedals and the engine. So when you drive it, your feet feel like they're being burned because the engine heat gets tunneled there. I had to stop, and I had to get boots and water because I was so hot driving that bus, which is exactly kind of what we see here. Christ's doing ministry stuff. The Pharisees here, he's baptizing. Oh, he's got to do some travel. But then he gets thirsty along the way and has to stop because it's hot. And his disciples who were with him doing stuff, they were hungry, so they needed to go get food. And I remember on that particular trip, I was in charge of going and getting food. So I went to the store and loaded up on groceries, came back, made sandwiches for the guys. So this is everyday occurrences woven in to intentional ministry stuff. And Christ used that to, to bless this woman. So we're going to see how he uses this. First, give me some water. Verse 9, the woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. She has a typical response that would be expected. Jesus is from one people group, the Jews. She is from a separate people group, the Samaritans, and they don't get along. It says they have nothing to do with, or the Jews have nothing to do with the Samaritans, no dealings with the Samaritans. So there's this Jewish man, and he's asking me for water. She's kind of pointing out the obvious. How is it that you're doing this? You guys don't even talk to us. And Jesus, never missing an opportunity, immediately starts shaping the conversation towards spiritual matters. He takes this very simple opening dialogue, give me a drink, and then she takes a step back, well, how is it that you, a Jew, would ask me for a drink? And he doesn't miss a beat. And you see him start shaping this conversation for this woman's blessing. Her response is normal and probably even a little justified given the history of those two people groups. And Jesus is going to use this dialogue. He answers, Jesus answers her, If you knew the gift of God, and he who is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. He's going to start dropping words and phrases and concepts that don't make sense to her, that's going to force her brain to start thinking outside of the physical and into the spiritual. And you're going to watch him do this very gently throughout this text. He says, if you knew the gift of God. Well, when you start a sentence like that, if you knew, that's going to pique most people's curiosity. If I knew what? And that's going to kind of draw them into being a little more receptive. If you knew what God had in store for you. Well, what do you mean? What's God have in store for me? And, and he's, he's kind of drawing her in a little bit. If you knew. And then he says, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that was asking you for a drink of water, you would ask him. So he kind of flips the script on her. Give me water. Well, hey, who are you to ask me? You should be asking me. This doesn't make sense. And the woman says that. The woman says to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with. And the well is deep. Where did you get this living? Where, did you, where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. Indignant at his questioning, she immediately assumes, he's saying he's better than Jacob. These Jews, and they're just, he's saying he's better than Jacob. 
How, how do you get this living water? You don't even have a bucket. You need a bucket to get water out of a well, and you're the one without the bucket here. This isn't making sense. She's only seeing the physical. She only responds with the physical, and she's got the little bit of suspicion that he's maybe putting Jacob down, which is who they hold on to. That's their father. That's their patriarch. And Jesus replies. Jesus says to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. And the water that I will give him will become a spring of well, a spring of water welling up inside of him. He answers her question, where do you get this water? He says it's a spring inside of you. That's why he doesn't have a bucket. And to answer your question, are you greater than Jacob? Yes. He doesn't come out and say yes, but he makes a framework that he puts Jacob's well down and his well up. Jacob's well requires you to keep coming, and you can drink from it all you want, but you're going to get thirsty again. You're going to have to come back. But the water I'm promising you, it stays inside of you. It's a spring inside of you, and it leads to eternal life. That's how he ends. And this is a great example. This is a great picture of the law and, and the sacrificial system and how you have to keep going back to it. But it never satisfies. It only covers. It only covers. It never makes anyone righteous. And Jesus, salvation in Christ alone, is a one-time sacrifice that makes you righteous. And it's an indwelling righteousness that you get to own. And we get to see this 2,000 years later because of all the other texts. But he even hid that in there for our benefit. The woman says to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not be thirsty or have to come here and draw water. It's a good response. Okay, water that leads to eternal life, a spring in me. I'm tired of hiking this mountain, coming to the, or, you know, hiking this hill, coming to this well and drawing it, hiking back. This is a labor-intensive lifestyle. Hey, if you can free me from this burden, I'll take it. And isn't that a great picture of evangelism? You get to go out and you talk to somebody, you're sharing the gospel with them, and there seems to be like a almost, yeah, okay, Jesus sounds pretty good. Sure, what, oh, okay, what do I got to do to be saved? You know, oh, yeah, not go to hell? That sounds nice. Oh, heaven? Heaven's great. Okay, yeah, well, sign me up. Let's go to heaven. What do I got to do? Do I have to fill out a membership card? What church do you go to? How much do you need a month? I mean, you encounter these people and they don't understand and they still are thinking in the physical. What do I have to do to get this? But there's always that sin issue that's got to get dealt with. There's always that heart issue that needs to change. Because while salvation is free, it doesn't come cheap. So Jesus tells her, all right, go get your husband. You two come back. He says, Jesus says to her, go call your husband and come here. He tells her, I'll wait. And this is the Spirit of God revealing to Christ what he needs to poke this woman right in the middle. To poke her right in the heart to prick her conscience in such a way that she realizes this isn't an ordinary encounter. He exposes, or he's about to expose her sin. This is necessary in evangelism. It's necessary for sin to be addressed 
It's necessary for the person to understand that there's something between them and God that's got to get worked out first. And the Lord gives wisdom and he, and he provides opportunity to find out what that is. Because we want people to come in. We want the banquet halls of our, of our master filled. We want um, people to show up and praise the name of God. So we make the offer. And when they come, we, we use the scriptures to address the sin. The woman answers him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying you have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one who, is, who you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. She admits that she doesn't have a husband. She doesn't provide any more information. But the Holy Spirit has already revealed to Jesus what he needs. The Spirit of God is drawing this woman to Jesus and is slowly opening her eyes to who he really is. He is revealing that he is the Christ to her. If you want to look with me to John chapter 6, verse 37. I'll wait for just a second for everybody to get there. John six thirty-seven. It's a short verse. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And that is what we are witnessing right here. We are witnessing the Father draw this woman to Jesus, and he's not casting her out. He's addressing the sin that needs to be addressed, but he's not casting her out. He tells her, you're right. You had five husbands, and you're currently living with a guy that's not your husband. And he exposes her sin right before her. Jesus is meek and lowly and humble. This wasn't an accusation. This didn't make her want to run screaming. This man knows who I am, and yet he's still engaging me. And clearly, he's more than the average Joe. She responds, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. She maintains respect, calls him sir. She maintains the dialogue because this guy's willing to talk to me and he's a prophet. This isn't her trying to skirt the issue, jump ship, change direction. This is her saying, okay, I finally got a prophet. I've got one who speaks for God. I, we say to worship on this mountain. You guys say Jerusalem. If he's here, if he's talking to me, I'm going to get some questions answered. And he's willing to discuss what's going on. So I'm going to keep going. This is a woman who has had her heart prepared for this encounter before it happened. The Spirit had been doing work on her before she showed up that day. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Her mind's still on the physical. Do I worship here or do I worship there? And Jesus is starting to shape it away from the physical to the spiritual. There's coming a day. The hour is coming where you won't worship in either place. That's not the issue. It's spirit and in truth. It's the inside. It's the inside that he cares about. You're worshiping what you don't know. We worship what we know. And then he presents the first of just some wonderful dominoes that are going to fall. Salvation is from the Jews. 
you need to be looking out for a Jewish man for your salvation. That's where it's going to come. It's going to come through a Jewish man. Remember, there's this animosity between the two, and she's opened herself up to ask questions and get information. He tells her salvation's coming from the Jews. Never mind this mountain stuff. That's debatable. We don't want to talk about that. God wants to be worshipped in spirit and truth. Salvation is from the Jews. That's what you need to be keeping an eye out for. So he puts it in her mind. Salvation's going to be coming. It's time to get ready for it. The hour's coming. She didn't know how close that hour was. Verse 23. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, and the Father is seeking people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. This is not an outward sign of worship. This is an inward humility and true spiritual worship. That's what God is seeking. Wait, the Father is seeking people? Yes, the Father is seeking such people to worship him. If you found out God was seeking people to worship him, your first thought would be, how do I get his attention? What do I need to do to be one of these people? If he's looking for someone to worship him, if he's out there looking for it, I want to be on his radar. But you can almost miss at the beginning, he tells her, but the hour is coming and is now here. He's telling her like it's right now. He's not framing it to some distant prophecy. He's letting her know this is all happening right now. God's not looking for lip service on a mountain or in a temple. He's looking for true worshipers. The woman said to him, I know Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. She admits she's looking toward the Messiah. She's looking for the Messiah. She's confessing, I I, I don't have all of this worked out, but there's someone, he's coming, and when he comes, he's going to line all this out for us. He'll be the one to show this to me. I'm looking towards the Messiah, and when he gets here, then I'll know I found the right one. Five husbands living with one who's not her husband. In that day and age, that is a poorly treated woman. Samaritan, the Jews turning their back on them, not treating them. This is a poorly treated woman. But she's looking forward to when the Messiah comes. And Jesus says to her, I who speak to you am he. Talk about a mic drop moment. He's been preparing her this whole conversation for this one sentence. He's gotten her away from the, well, hey, how are you talking to me? How are are you talking to me? You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. Okay, well, well, you guys worship on that mountain. We worship on this mountain. He's gotten her away from all of that so that she can understand what he's telling her. After engaging a woman that a Jew would never engage, And he tells her he can provide her with living water that will lead to eternal life. He then exposes her sin and doesn't rebuke her or run away from her because of it. He corrects her improper understanding of worship. He alerts her that the hour is drawing near for the true worshipers of God. 
It's close at hand. He gets her to the point where she admits, I'm waiting for the Messiah. And then he reveals he's the one she's been waiting for. It doesn't say it in the text, but after he says that, you can only imagine her eyes watering and her going, I've been waiting for you. But praise be to God that the story doesn't end there. Remember, this is a very normal, everyday encounter. How many times have you been talking with somebody, evangelizing, and then their bus comes and they have to go to work? Or your bus comes and you have to go to work. Or your friends that went to go get some food while you guys were talking show up and they say, hey, the food's here. And that kind of disrupts the conversation. That's not quite what happened. So looking at verse 27. So the disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? They assume the best from Jesus. He's shown no character that there would be any inappropriateness of him talking with a woman. A little strange that a Jew is talking to a Samaritan, but Jesus has been doing things in front of them that's a little strange from day one. They have the best intentions, and they stand back and kind of wait. Like, oh, he's, he's clearly talking with somebody. And this immediate revelation of I'm talking with the Messiah compounded with 11 dudes showing up with a bunch of food kind of breaks the moment as it would in most normal life. Verse 28. So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to see him. She sees the Christ as the Messiah, and her first reaction is to go tell others. It's the fastest evangelist recorded in history for us. Her sins are forgiven. She is alerted to this is the one I have been waiting for. And he speaks to me and engages with me and offers me living water. And then she takes the testimony she has, which is the weirdest testimony ever. Come see a man who told me all I ever did. She doesn't have a Bible study degree. She doesn't have a theology class. She couldn't define propitiation. She would fail all of our children's moments on the five solas. But she met the Messiah, and she wants her people to know he's there. And and, and again, reality, his friends just showed up with food. They're going to eat and leave. Jews don't come to Samaria. This was obviously a unique circumstance. So she runs. Come see a man who, who who said everything I ever did. He didn't say everything she ever did, but it was the important stuff. It was the big stuff. It was the thing that was needed to alert her that this is the Messiah. And then, verse 31, we have normal life. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. You can be as hungry as ever. You can be working all day out in, you know, whatever your industry is, skip breakfast, skip lunch, late dinner. But when you get a chance to evangelize with someone and things are clicking and the spirit's moving, oh, you don't care about food anymore. 
Oh, you're, you're, you're doing what you want to do. You're doing what sustains your soul. Let this body fall away and crumble. This guy's open to hearing about the gospel. I'll eat tomorrow. I'll eat next week. Trust me, I'm an American. I can go a couple hours. But this guy, oh, he needs the Lord now. And the disciples come upon this moment, and they're like, all right, we got the food, let's eat. And Jesus, not missing an opportunity to teach, even his disciples. That's not what we should really be focusing on, guys. Yes, the food's here. He's not rebuking them, but he's telling them, I have food that you don't know about. Because they see the physical, they think in the physical, this is, what? Okay, did somebody else bring him food? And he tells them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That is what sustains me. It also says that she left the water jar. uh, Matthew Henry says she left it as a kindness. He's thirsty. He was thirsty at the beginning. He's still thirsty. That's the one thing she had to offer the Lord. She left it for him. Jesus continues to use this teaching opportunity for his disciples. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who is reaping receives his wage and gathering fruit for eternal life. So the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I have sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. He's using something they understand. I mean, harvest, agricultural society. Okay, it's going to be a couple months till harvest, then we're going to harvest, and the fields are going to be ripe, and we're we're going to produce. And he's saying, the fields are ripe. They're ready for harvest. You're going to be harvesting fields that others have planted. This is just like telling them they're going to be fishers of men. He's using something they understand to try and convey a spiritual truth. This is what you are to be about. Find the ripe field and harvest it. He's telling them this seconds before they go and enter one of these fields and start harvesting. Little did they know the crop was on its way to meet them. Verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there, th- there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that he is indeed the Savior of the world. Then after two days, he departed to Galilee. Our woman at the well, this lady, became an instant evangelist and a fruitful one. We're told Samaritans, many Samaritans from that town believed because of her testimony. Her testimony was, he told me all I ever did. But the zeal in which she proclaimed it, the sincerity, the change of life, and the working of the Holy Spirit made it abundant to them. She really did see the Messiah. The guy by the well really is the Messiah. And they believed. How much more? can we share with the lost world who have Bibles and commentaries and daily readings and, and, and more knowledge than, than we could ever actually bring in? How much more can we share with this lost world? 
How much more of a testimony can we give to the world about the goodness of Christ? Because it's not the greatness of your testimony. Clearly, it's not the greatness of your testimony that leads to salvation. It's zeal for the Lord, and it's a desire to see people saved. The Lord uses willing servants, and this lady didn't even hesitate. I have never heard a testimony more pitiful than this woman's. He showed me all I ever did. And the Lord used that testimony to save people. And those that it didn't stay, that at least stirred up to come and meet the Jesus himself. And on the heels of the very parable that he's telling his disciples about the field is ripe for harvest. This giant field comes over the hill and starts talking to them. And many were saved. Many Samaritans were saved. Brothers and sisters, it's the same message 2,000 years ago as it is today. The fields are white for harvest. I know when you look at this world, you see lost, hopeless people running around hating God. And that's true. That's what they are. You don't want to deal with this world. You watch the news. You check Facebook. There's another shooting. There's some liberal uh, influencer trying to brainwash your children. There's, there's some war somewhere. There's some danger somewhere. There's some shortage somewhere. There's some new disease somewhere. And it seems like staying in your house and keeping your kids away from all electronic devices might be the only way to survive. But it's the same message. The fields are ripe for harvest. Now, I'm not going to only have good news for you because you're not going to be able to evangelize to everybody on the planet. We've got 8 billion people on the planet, and if you wanted to give every one of them a 10-second gospel presentation, it works out to about 2,500 years. But you can evangelize those that the Lord puts in your life, like the woman at the well, like the lady at the grocery store, like your Uber driver, like your lost co-workers, like your children. And you don't have to wait until you graduate seminary. You don't have to wait until you have at least 10 books of the Bible memorized. If you've been saved for more than a day, then you have an advantage on this lady here. And look what the Lord used with her. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the reminder that the fields are white for harvest. And Lord, it is everyday situations with everyday people that you are happy to enter into those conversations and save coworkers and friends and family members. Lord, may this stir us up to evangelize, not make us feel guilty for our lack, but let us put off any fear of man and be expectant that you want to see the lost saved. Amen.